Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. On this episode of the Casting Light Podcast, we have the one and only Vicki Claiborne. Welcome, Vicki. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, let, let me see if I have all this correct. You have over 25 years' experience in the business. You've worked on global events, television, corporate events, galas, conventions, trade shows, etc. My uh, career so far. And you've been a lighting designer, and a media designer, a lighting programmer, and a media programmer, and you're also an educator. That's correct, yeah. Including the fact that you taught me how to use the HOG-3 many, many years ago now. <laughs> it's a small world, I think. It sure seems that way. Uh, you're also the author of Media Service for Lighting Programmers. What, what publishing house is that available from? That is available from Focal Press, and it, uh, you can actually find it on their website as well as uh, Amazon and PLSN Magazine sells it on their bookshelf as well. Okay. We'll talk about that a little, little bit later. And you also write for PLSN. I do. I have a every other month column called Video Digerati, and I also do guest feature columns. I like to interview top programmers in our business and product reviews on exciting products that catch my eye. What's your background, and how did you sort of get into this? Well, how did you get into the business, period? Well, um, the Reader's Digest version of my background, I started in theater as a theater major at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. And when I graduated, I was trying to figure out exactly how to make use of that degree. So I ended up moving to Branson, Missouri, and I started working at a theater called the Grand Palace on, in its inaugural year. And for the first few years after it opened, every month, every few weeks, we would get another couple of guest uh, artists that would come in and be there for a month or so. So I learned to program with the, and I'm dating myself here, the IntelliBeam LED controller. That was a brand new product at that time. And so my the theater uh, sent me down to Austin to high ends warehouse there and, and I went through the training classes and stuff and once I got down there and I saw what high end did, it interested me greatly and, and I, I went back to Branson, Missouri for another season after that and ended up going on the road with a country artist named Kathy Matea and I spent a couple of seasons with her. In that process of going to work for Kathy, I moved to Nashville. And then I ended up getting hired by high-end systems. I was pretty persistent that they needed to hire me, actually. And finally, I think Tim Grievous just, you know, kind of said, okay, already, let's hire this woman. I left Nashville and moved to Austin and worked for high-end for about 14 years. I think that's actually where I learned to do all of my real programming work. I, I, you know, we programmed every single type of controller we had. We had all kinds of fixtures that had different types of controllers. And then we launched the Status Q. I took that under my wing and developed a training program for it. Then from the Status Q, High End bought Flying Pig Systems. And I took the Hog 2 under my wing and started doing training classes for that and created a training program for that. And from that, we went into Hog 3, and then I kind of, at some point in the evolution of Hog 3, uh, went into the freelance world and 
stayed in Austin for a couple of years and realized that to freelance out of Austin was kind of tough without new clientele. So I moved to Vegas and PRG hired me and I'm still with PRG today. Oh, you didn't you didn't move to Vegas for the PRG job. No, I did actually. Yeah, I started looking at other locales to kind of figure out where would I go to be a programmer and do what I do. And, and I reached out to PRG to find out about getting into their their concert touring pool of people. And I was immediately given the opportunity to come in and interview for uh, the position I have today, which is uh, called a product specialist, which is sort of a loose term for everything that has to do with support um, of pretty much not only PRG products, but I support any product that we rent out of the PRG warehouse in terms of control systems. So I um, handle calls for the Grand May. I handle calls for Hog products. You know, not only that, I, of course, the PRG products, the 676, the inbox, um, and then just general questions with help and setup. We have a the S400 system uh, is a big networking data um, proprietary product that we have. And so a lot of concert tours come through uh, Las Vegas, so I will help them get their systems set up and configured and all working before they leave and go out on the road. So I, I really have found a nice little niche in this particular warehouse because it, it gives me the, a great opportunity to have my hand in a lot of different aspects of what PRG does as a company, as well as just getting to work on a variety of different projects that come through. So it's a really great place to be. So you've now become basically an expert in every product that <laughs> PRG fields for control. Well, I do try to learn as much as I can about as many different products because in our industry, with everything, all of the control systems, you know, going on to a network, it really helps to have a general understanding of, of a lot of different products so that when the phone rings at, you know, 11 o'clock at night, I can help them and I don't have to forward them on to somebody else. I find it challenging when I have to call someone and either I can't get in touch with them at, or because it's after hours or it's a weekend. And I, I just, I never... <laughs> lost that mentality. When I worked at High End, we, the four of us, there were four programmers in our department, and we called ourselves firefighters because we were on call pretty much 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no matter where we were. And I just never have stopped being that way. If I've met people and they need help and they can reach me, then I'm going to do my best to help them. That's just how I want to be treated, so I try to treat everybody else that way too. So basically all of the programming that you learned initially, you learned at high end. I would have to say so, yeah, that we, we were put into positions at that job where on any given day we were doing something completely different for, for anything from nightclubs locally to huge tours going out on the other side of the world and everything in between, trade show booths, uh, product demos. I can't tell you how many product demos that I did over the years. And there's always something about when you're in front of a client and you are trying to show them a product um, that, in my opinion, it, it puts you on that, you know, that uh, edge of your seat, that adrenaline is going because you want to make sure that they don't walk away with, you know, a negative feeling about the product or um, about you. You, you know, I always uh, think about that when I'm around clients in general, but 
Um, so I always pushed myself to try to be as efficient as I could as a programmer. Always try to be ready and not fumble around and not look like I'm lost or holding the, the designer up in any way, shape, or form. And that's those are all lessons that I learned while I was at high end. Definitely uh, taught me those things. I see. And do you still program now? I do. Yes. I, I probably don't do it as much as I, well, I definitely don't do it as much as I used to, but Patrick uh, Little gives me the opportunity when the opportunity arises to go out and, and do programming and designing. Um, that's actually a new part of, of my career since I've come to PRG. I've given the opportunity to do a lot more design work, which at high end, I was always, you know, brought in basically as either as programmer or a consultant to a designer. So um, it's, it's been really, really good. But I do, I do try to program as often as I can get the opportunity. And whether it's something small, because we do a lot of corporate events here in town, um, that might just be a couple of sticks of trust with some movers on it, uh, up to very large events that uh, one in particular that I'm very fond of that I have the opportunity to do every year at Aria Resort um, for New Year's Eve. And that's a huge party where they, they allow me to um, be as creative as I can possibly be. So, um, and everything in between. It sounds like a really uh, cool event. and I'd like to talk about that in a little bit more detail okay. uh, in a little bit later. But so you've been programming for so for basically twenty five years now. Um, more or less, yes. Yeah, since uh, I have to say, since the early nineties. <laughs> and that's about as long as there have been programmers by by job title. I would have to agree with you there. I think there there were very few in the beginning, which is part of the reason why I was in I was just drawn to the business because there were only a few women, and uh, I wanted to be one of those uh, people at the forefront of the industry as it evolved. So talking about about that evolution, mm-hmm. it seems that like these days the programmer is sort of firmly part of the design team, except when they're not. Tell me a little bit about the different sort of scenarios for a programmer. Give me a couple different variations on on how you've worked as part of a team. Well, I think it it's going to vary widely given number one the programmers' skill level. I I think there are different types of programmers, and there are people that will excel in each role or all of the roles differently. Um, there are some programmers who are most comfortable just simply entering in the information into the console and not contributing to the design process. And then I think there's, on the opposite side of that, there are programmers who are creative people who may or may not do their own programming while they're doing their design. And and I think I fall into that category more times than the other two categories. And the, uh, the, the third category is somewhere in between where I think the majority of designer of programmers find a relationship, develop a relationship with um, with a lighting designer or multiple designers, and it may start out as I'm only entering in information, but as the designer grows more comfortable with that with that programmer's uh, vision or eye or skill level, he he or she may give that programmer more opportunity to have more input into the creative role. And eventually, if, you know, and this has happened for a lot of programmers in our in our business over the years, they'll start out as a programmer and they'll do such a great job working with a certain designer that 
they'll get a call from the designer eventually where the designer says, hey, I'm overbooked. I've got this gig that just popped up. Can you cover this for me? Do what you want with it. Here's the plot. Go and then that programmer will show up and program and design the show basically off of what he knows that that how the designer would, you know, kind of work once they're there. And I think that's ultimately, you know, the, the, the scope or the range of styles of programmers. And, and I think as a programmer, you don't have to be any one particular thing, but I do think you have to be really good at communication, no matter what you do. You need to have a great set of listening ears and, and be able to kind of guide the designer, um, if that designer asks or needs help and or in some way or shape or form. And, uh, and I think the, the ones that go furthest in this business are probably the ones that can grasp those um, assistant roles and eventually will become an assistant LD and, and, and then move on into, you know, their own design work um, in, in years to come. So it's, it's a good place to be. I think as I've always said, I, back when I started that I never really wanted to be the designer. I always wanted to stay as the programmer because the designer has to deal with all of the budgets and all of the paperwork and all of the meetings that go on. And they really don't do as much creative stuff um, as the programmer gets to do in some cases. Um, But I think, you know, a good team, it makes, it takes a good team. I think it, it, you know, the designer, when he, when he uh, trusts the programmer, um, that it's a good balance there, and that's that's only going to make the the project that much better. You mentioned how critical communication is. Mm-hmm. How can communication break down, and what can we do to keep that from happening? Well, I think there's a million ways communication can break down because somebody can say, "Give me a blue wash," and there's thirty different ways that blue wash can look. Truthfully, if I'm in the programming seat and I don't feel like I know enough information about how to give the designer what they're looking for then it's my responsibility, I think, to ask questions, to make sure I'm clear, to clarify it. So, And if the designer says, well, I don't really know, just show me something, then I know it's okay for me to throw something out there. And if he doesn't like it, great. I've not wasted his time. And he may give me more latitude to do something else. If he likes what I'm doing, then we'll take it and run, run, and run with it. So um, I think it just has to do with asking questions and not being afraid to ask questions, but also, you know, not asking so many questions that you're not very productive. So there's a fine balance there of being able to take just enough information and run with it to make the process continue forward. If it starts to go off the tracks, so to speak, then I think the best thing to do when I'm kind of in that situation is just to take a break say, hey, look, you know what, I I think I just need to step away, maybe go grab a soda. You know, if you've been working for two or three days straight and you had very little sleep, sometimes it's just, is it okay if we just take like a half an hour here and let me step away? Because a lot of times you'll get, you can get so frustrated with yourself that you end up making even more mistakes, um, which is only going to decrease the confidence that the designer has in you. So it's best to say, hey, look, you know what, I think... Right now, I need 15 minutes or something just to kind of clear your head and calm down and come back at it with a fresh perspective, you know, if, if you can. I definitely want to talk about 
both the lighting and the media side of programming. Mm -hmm. But you you mentioned the ARIA event, the ARIA New Year's event, and that sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that event, sort of talk about how it gets put together and what your process is and, and sort of how you get to the part where you're making everything look awesome? Absolutely. We're actually starting that process. Uh, we've now met twice on the upcoming New Year's event, um, typically around the middle of the year. The uh, executive director for the MGM Events International will call a meeting for his creative team. And over the years, I started out many years ago um, doing programming only for these types of events, not just New Year's Eve, but other corporate parties at various MGM properties. Um, and when the technical director of ARIA moved into that position, I had a relationship with him, and he asked me if I would be interested in designing lighting for the ARIA New Year's Eve parties and uh, right after they opened. So I immediately said, yes, I would love that opportunity. And so there's a team of us that get together, and we hash out all kinds of crazy ideas and ultimately bring our ideas to these meetings and kind of whittle down to what the theme is going to be. Well, usually the theme is decided, you know, by the upper level. But we decide on the kind of the direction that the party is going to go, with, you know, how many people that's going to be in the party and what the overall look and feel of the room might be geared toward. And then we'll kind of go our separate ways. And that's when I do my initial truss layout for the room based on those uh, discussions on where the action's going to be happening at what you know during the evening and then we will have a second or a third meeting at that point which is going to be happening for us here pretty soon as our third meeting to basically look over those refinements and narrow down to the truss layout once the truss layout is decided for me I will start dropping in lighting fixtures where I want them. I always keep my eyes and ears open for fun, exciting new products. I try every year to use something brand new in the show so that not only is the party an exciting new feel, but for me as a designer, I get to work with a brand new fixture that I might not otherwise get to use on any other particular show. And then I'll also discuss video along the way. If there's a huge video requirement for the show, like there was last year, I'll be a part of that as well and have some input, if not all, the input into the video content um, for the show uh, that will vary depending on what the video needs are for the show. And then come December, we start rehearsals and then we load in last couple weeks of December and I program as much as I can program in, in, a, in a 10-day period to be ready for the party. So that's kind of the process. Okay, I think that's a, that's a critical thing to note there that you have days of programming when I, you know, I feel like there are people that throw events like this that think that it can be done in an evening. This is true, and I will have to say that being that Aria is the flagship property of MGM, they they actually throw this party for their own VIP guests. So they block out the ten, last 10 days of the year for nothing but getting this show staged and in the room and rehearsals and all that kind of stuff. So 
I, you know, may not have 10 solid days of programming, but I do try to be on that console within a couple of days of being in their room. Uh, if, if nothing else, putting groups, pallets, getting set up stuff, getting position focuses are kind of tough because the stage has to build, get built and stuff, but doing whatever I can to be ready as soon as I can be to start programming uh, actual cues for the show. So, you know, probably about a week's worth of programming goes into the show by the time it launches. And it's not a small show. It's a four-hour party, which sounds great and all, but in the midst of the party, there are anywhere from seven to nine full-on dance production numbers that are choreographed with costumes, video, lighting, and or lasers, and who knows, whatever else, that are usually time-coded, so they're pretty heavy. And in between that, we have great live band music, disco, pop, rock, you name it, all kinds of music in the show. And I usually punt all that, although I have a pretty good punt page for that. I still try to have some basic looks for that, um, so I'm not just completely winging it. But the majority of the programming goes into the production numbers. I see. Well, so on this most recent one, what technologies did you use for control and for and for other aspects? Uh, this last one was um, Grand Ame. A couple of years ago, uh, well, a few years ago now, uh, decided to get up to speed on the Grand Ame in the in a short period of time. So I still find myself, you know, really loving to talk to other Grand Ame programmers and seeing how they set up the console because I have my way and it works great for my show. But when uh, you know I'm around other people, I love to pick their brains on other ideas, and it's one of the reasons I love the Grand Ame so much is it is so user definable and very flexible, but it's also one of the most challenging things about the console in the beginning when you don't really have, you know, a structure that you know how to set it up with. So uh, it's sort of like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, in the last, say, year or so, I've actually been trying to transition away from how I would set up a hog. Uh, and because I've, I've, started approaching the Grand Ame when I first started as a hog and setting it up the same way. And I've kind of discovered that that's not probably not the most efficient way to use the console. So I've been trying to change some of that along the way and adapt some other features into my programming style, like macros, which I never needed or used on a hog before because they weren't as robust, I guess is the best way to put it. So I used it inboxes. I had uh, three inboxes, and and they were full because we had video screens in various locations around the room. All of the video screen LED screens did had different con content on them, so it was essentially like we had five different shows going on in the room at any given time. With that was a it was a pretty heavy show. I have to say it was probably the most challenging show for me as a programmer. Um, just simply in a time factor, um, just trying to get it all in in that same 10 days. And I basically doubled my workload lighting and, and video, which I kind of learned my lesson that if it starts looking like it's going to be that video heavy, that it's okay to say I might need a, another programmer. So that taught me a lesson. But luckily, I you know, it, it, it we pulled it off. And, it, and it, uh, as far as I know, I thought it looked great. But um I always look at it and go, if I'd had more time, I could have done more. And, you know, I'll always be that way. But, yeah, so in the brand-new technology that we used last year for me was the, the shape shifter from high-end systems. I had a great time with those. A little bit of a learning curve at the beginning to try to 
understand how to use the onboard, you know, effects macros that are built in. But once I kind of spent some extra time with it one night and sort of started to get the uh, basic palettes down to get some of the patterns going, then I was able to, you know, unlock like all of the the really cool stuff that uh, that you see in their demos and stuff on on their website. And, and I really liked them. They're, I think they're a great effect light that also could be used as an area wash. Although in, in my show, that was not the purpose for them. In my eyes, they were to wow the audience, um, you know, in, in the full on straight on looking at them with the beam spread out and spinning and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, everyone at the end of the night that didn't understand my vision for that wall of shapeshifters when we were loading them in they finally got it at the end of the night when they were like that looked really great <laughs> i'm like thanks <laughs> well that's always when it happens when they see it and they're like oh now i get it now i get like, it like well yeah exactly it does sound like a like a great product for that kind of usage i definitely i agree with that i think there are certain led products that um, if you can, you know, embrace them for what they do best, you, you really can maximize their use. It's when, it's when you try to take one type of fixture and make it work like another that you might not get as much out of it as you could. I definitely want to talk about Rocket Rio as well. That was a highlight for me this year. Can we talk about that event? I was a lead programmer for the festival, and I was in charge of the main stage. I had a team of three other programmers, and we handled all of the lighting on all of the, the stages. Um, there was a separate set of people that dealt with the media server programming um, because that was through a competitive company, uh, a competitor to PRG. So I advanced all of the bands that were coming in. Um, the lighting plot was designed by Patrick Woodruff's firm, uh, WBD. And Woodruff Bassett. That's correct. And Terry Cook was our uh, designer who came to show site. And I got to spend some great time with Terry. And I programmed the, uh, there was a nightly two-minute, two- to three-minute pyro lighting show that they played prior to the uh, headliner going on stage. And that was, uh, that was my contribution to programming for Rock and Rio is I got to program that uh, little time code pyro lighting show with Terry. And, and then in addition to that, just I punted when needed and I made sure that guest LDs when they came in had their show files ready to go. If they had questions, I helped them load the show files. I helped them. I ran audience lighting and, and miscellaneous lighting like, um, well, they had, we had audience towers that had pars and mole phase. Some would want to run the mole phase and, and not the pars, the LED pars and just various things. And then I got to program the facade for the main stage, which was really cool because it's in every picture. So, um, What do you mean program the facade? The facade of the main stage is a huge curved, it's sort of a convex and concave sheets of silver metal material. Now I can't remember the specs on it, but uh, it's a hundred and some odd feet wide by hundred feet tall or so. And it was lit uh, with impressions, uh, X4s. And so I did all kinds of color effects and 
you know, color washes on the facade during the bands, when the bands are playing. Um, if the lighting designer didn't have the time or, or, uh, or interest in, in controlling the facade, most did want the facade, you know, under their control, but some just were like, no, just follow along. If I, if I'm red on stage, make it red. Okay, great. And that add on a little dimmer chase or whatever, and, and, uh, be good to go. And so it was, it was a lot of fun. I got to work with three other very talented um, programmers on that show, Chris Lose, Evan Bloom, and Dan Renfro. And we sort of developed this this little camaraderie where we were into each other's business and sharing ideas. And I was constantly on the radio going, Chris, I need a macro for so-and-so. And he'd make me a macro and run it over. And, you know, and so it was, it was a really good uh, really good teamwork. I, I enjoyed it a lot. It was back in May of this year. How would you compare and contrast that with the head programmer job you were on on the Olympics? You know, uh, we talked about that with Brad when he was on the show, and he said that you were basically the the first person there, and that you were also in charge of training all the other programmers. Well, that role was definitely um, exciting. It was different, however, I. I, back in that period of time, this we're talking about the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Um, so the show was on the Hog too, and so multi-console networks didn't really exist back then in the way they do today. Um, we had to have because uh, because Hog twos only had seven outputs uh, maximum cap- capability. We had to have. Uh, I think it was seven different Hog 2 consoles just for the stadium lighting stuff, and then two additional ones for the roof lighting and uh, audience lighting was done on a strand console. So it was, the way it was broken up, we had nine different, I think it is, nine different Hog programmers working on the show. So as the main trainer for High End at that time, they sent me down to Australia first to make sure, and we did a we did a week long training class just to make sure all the programmers that were going to be on the show um, had the same level of knowledge because everybody had been programming on Hogs before, but you know it was just more or less to make sure that everybody had the same tools and you know tips and tricks and stuff, um, and to kind of get everybody on the same page, and then. Uh, there was a, another person who came down uh, uh, along with Brad that was really there um, kind of from the beginning, and that was Rob. Oh, he's going to kill me. Um, from Cast Lighting at the time. And he came down and set up all of the WYSIWYG networking and stuff because we used WYSIWYG in a previous suite um, for, I don't remember how many, we, I think it was two weeks we were in a previous suite. And so we had all these WYSIWYG machines and all these Hog 2s in this studio and programming with each other and, and uh, really having a good time. And then I was kind of just basically there at that point to, to do my part, which was, you know, be on the team of programmers and, and uh, be a li- liaison in a way for Brad and myself, basically for high end so we could keep our um, – you know, communication up with our company and let them know, you know, how things were coming along and, um, you know, the status on a day-to-day basis. And if the programmers needed any support, if we needed software updates or any kind of 
you know, that was sort of my role and Brad's role is to make sure that those things got facilitated in the easiest way possible. So that was that was kind of the scope of the role then. I, di- I didn't really have anything to do with the networking or, or any kind of DMX layout or anything on, on that. It was mainly to go down there and make sure that our Cyberlight turbos did uh, perform well on, uh, on the stadium. <laughs> and perform well they did. Yeah, there was quite a few of them. I think there was over 200 on that show, just, just at Cyber, Cyberlight turbos. So they did, they did a good job. Now, what about a show where all you were doing was media? Well, I have had the opportunity a few times to do that while at PRG as well. Um, I think the last show that I probably did that on was with a a fellow programmer named Ken Jones, who is here in Las Vegas. And uh, give a shout out to Ken. Hi, Ken. Um, Hey, we'll have him on the show. Yeah, there you go. You should because he's awesome. He asked me because he found himself in that position where the media portion of a show he was working on was getting much larger than original concepts. So he asked me would I be uh, uh, interested in doing the media wrangling, as we call it. And I said yes, and it ended up being um, a very necessary part. It was for a, a pharmaceutical company, and it was two inboxes, and it was all custom content, and we used one of the features of inbox called topography, and we were able to map out essentially all the screens on the stage, around the stage, in the floor, on the on the proscenium, were, were kind of all part of one big video screen, and, uh, um, and I helped, I didn't actually do the programming portion on that, except for I managed the time code portion of that because it was a uh, it was a challenge to deal with the sheer number amount of content that was involved in that show so that would have to be one of the shows where for me I was not sitting behind the Grand MA doing the programming but I was working with Ken to make sure that he had everything he needed and then I was handling the things that he needed me to handle like the time code and loading all the content and stuff like that Laura Frank had mentioned running time code directly to servers, and I wasn't aware you could do that. Can you tell me a little, a little bit about that? Well, with Inbox, you can assign a time code directly to the file, and you actually don't uh, really have to do much more than that, uh, other than just make sure the time code is active in the server. And and then what that allows you to do is effectively you can scrub the video back and forward. If they move the time code, it moves the video to the right frame. So uh, it's it's a bit cleaner and simpler to do it that way. But it also means that the piece of content has to have everything rendered in it the way you want to see it because you're basically talking to the the piece of content without going through a lighting console. Um, You can also go through a lighting console and have content triggered through a queue. Um, which would give you a little bit more ability to layer on other images or colors or effects. But if we're talking huge video files that are just doing nothing but playing back exactly the way they're rendered, then, you know, you could toss a coin and say it's just as easy to do it directly. So, What kinds of system management have you had to do with these really robust and large systems that you're working with, whether that's on the console management side or on the system management side? Well, more and more, because PRG has the S400's proprietary data-empowered distribution product, I've put on the hat, so to speak, of a, of a network systems engineer for front of house. 
So when a, let's say a, a big show comes through like uh, Van Halen uh, at the beginning of the summer, we knew the tour was going to be prepped in our shop and they were going to be using Grand Amaze and they were going to use an S400 system and they were going to have remote consoles, say, back at the, at the Demirac position, stuff like that. So I'll sit down with those specifics for that, for that particular show, and I'll draw it up. And, and one of the coolest little uh, applications that I think we've sort of adapted within PRG, it's not intended for this purpose, but it works great, is, a, is an Apple product called OmniGraffle. And it's basically a flowchart um, type diagram software and we can lay out the entire system with nice little clean lines between front of house consoles backups and you know you put in all of your IP addresses you put in all your switches you put in all of your uh, breakout boxes and your and your nodes and your DP8000s and your NPUs and you get it all laid out and you look for potential problems you you know you want to make sure that Everything connects and it plays along and it's got its proper network assignments and things like that. And, and more and more, that's, that's a part of, of my role. Uh, I mean, there's several of us in PRG, you know, worldwide product specialists, but more and more, that's uh, something I work, you know, kind of closely with both Chris Conti and in our particular warehouse, a gentleman named Aaron Warhan, um, to create those system diagrams for front of house control. And that includes media servers as well. If they're using media servers on their show, I like to get those on that drawing as well. So we know, is it DMX? Is it ArtNet? Is it streaming ACN? If so, what connections do we need? And it can show you where potential problems might be. That sounds great. No, well, I can tell you I'll be looking into it because doing block diagrams and vector works can take a little bit longer than you might like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, I know you mentioned that you've been doing training mm -hmm. from very early on in your career. And in fact, you developed the training programs for Status Hue and for Whole Hog 2. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that you'd still be doing training after all this time if you didn't like it. What is it you like about it? I love helping someone demystify the thing that's that's making them confused. I guess I, I like helping people learn. that. I mean, I'm really passionate about learning myself. I just, I love new information and knowledge and if someone's got that interest and that passion to learn and I can share with them a way or a style or a thought that unlocks that for them then I get all excited I get I kind of uh, I like being considered a teacher in this industry um, it's just a role that I'm very comfortable with and passionate about and for me, even though it's not a requirement per se of my role as a product specialist, it's not my number one duty. We always get our clients will say, I've never used this before. Do you have a few minutes to show me how to use it? And of course, I mean, that's to me that, yes, let's go get one. Let's get it off the shelf and go set it up and, and let me answer these questions for you. And and again, Patrick Little has given me so much latitude. I've done classes for other consoles. When I first started, I was teaching Kansas classes for PRG as well as Hog 3. Um, I've now, of course, started teaching Grand MA 2 classes. And I just co-taught, I guess you could say, 
my first hog four class with uh, with Rudiger Heimig from high end. He came to town and I was his assistant. So I'm kind of putting on the hat for those consoles. One of the things PRG has given me another opportunity to do is to be a mentor for our internship. We have moved to a, a year round every three months. We get a new set of interns, lighting, audio, video, kind of a mixture. And for the lighting interns, I'm a, I'm a mentor, so I'll help them learn a few things in, on the consoles and programming side while they're there. So I just, I enjoy it. I really do. It's a, for me, it's a way to give back. Now, the, the classes themselves, uh, how do you sort of figure out how to structure classes, especially in a product that's, say, new, especially when you were doing classes and things that no one had ever really been trained on before? Right. Well, the way I teach is kind of the way I think. I think very, I would call it linear, although it's it's not as linear as a user manual because that's a bit stale. Um or can be stale to just read a manual, you know, page by page. But I try to structure my console programming classes in the order that the things you do. So, for instance, what's the first thing you do when you sit down behind a console? You probably patch, or you may set up your desktop. So those are the first couple of things I'll do is give you a sort of the lay of the land, introduce you to the, you know, which side is your programmer's buttons, which side is your playback buttons, where's your screens, how to open those screens, and then go into the patch, you know, patch a few fixtures, get you up and running, make, help you make a queue. And then from that, that gives you, in my opinion, that gives, a, gives you a foundation of you're feeling good. You're feeling like, hey, it's not, it's not that hard to do this. Then I can come back and layer on the specifics of now let's talk about, you know, preset palettes for position, color, um, you know, before you move into the harder stuff, it's, I think it's real important to build people's confidence and so that they, uh, you know, have a, have a decent solid foundation they can build upon. And that's, that's how I like learning. I'm not a huge fan of, having someone throw everything at me all at the beginning and then me trying to figure out when I need need to use a certain tool. I would rather be introduced to that tool when it makes the most sense in my workflow. And a lot of times I'll set out with a with an outline. I used to make PowerPoint files and I've kind of moved away from that. I have not made a PowerPoint file for a console in a while, but I do have an outline that I kind of follow and if that outline seems like something's out of place, then I'll move it into the right place the next time I, I teach. Move it into a place that it seems to flow better and make more sense. And I, it's oftentimes driven by questions in the class as well. Um, I try to keep everybody moving forward, but if I find that at a certain time in every class, this question's gonna come up, then it's, to me, that's the time to put that question into the outline and address it. I know one question I, I used to have a lot after going through a training course was, well, this training course didn't really get me ready to do this job. Mm -hmm. How do I get that next layer of knowledge? What would you say to people? The number one question I, I think we all get in this business is, how did you get where you are? You know, and at the end of the programming class, every woman wants to know that same exact question that you just asked. And the honest answer, I mean, I don't, there is no magic solution. This industry that we're in is not as uh, structured as, say, you know, being a lawyer or a doctor or something that's, 
you know, more of a proven path toward tenure and stuff like that. This industry, and I think this is why we're drawn to it, we don't have limits and boundaries. So therefore, it's really up to the individual to take that information and run with it. Now, having said that, I always encourage people to look for opportunities to do what they love doing, no matter how big or small the event. Don't come out of a training class and think that you're going to program the U2 tour. It's not going to happen. Um, you know, start with something that's local, you know, maybe a, a, a little private event at a, in a hotel ballroom that may only have 13 movers on it or something. But it's, it's taking the time to do every, every show that you do, that you have the opportunity to do, um, to do it to the best of your ability and use it as an opportunity to learn and not look at it as, oh, this is, eh, this is just a corporate show. It doesn't mean anything. Well, that's just not true. Every single show you do is an opportunity to grow and learn and practice your craft. If it seems like it's the most boring show in the world, then that's a great time to practice something new on the console you never knew how to do before because you've got all that extra time in the world to do it. That leads me into another question, and it's a sort of a good point that you made there. There's always some kind of like four spotlights, four wash lights for a little wedding or a bar mitzvah in a hotel ballroom or in a little event venue mm -hmm. available to sort of try stuff out and, and do some learning. Mm -hmm. Is there an equivalent to that for media programming? <laughs> what, what is that sort of bridge thing? Well, it might be a little tougher only in the sense of if somebody puts a media server on a show and you say you can do it, but you've never done it before, then it might not go well. So the advantage that I think media servers have over lighting fixtures is that the software is downloadable. You can download pretty much a demo copy of every media server software out there of some nature and or watch YouTube videos or training videos from the manufacturer um, ahead of time and follow along with that demo software. That's where you need to do that kind of stuff. That's going to probably be stuff you do on your own time, of course. Um, but I think it's time well spent to take advantage of the free demo software that manufacturers offer and familiarize yourself with it. Um, and if you absolutely say that you can do something, then you need to find a way to get the equipment ahead of time, set it up, know what you're doing before you walk in the show and waste everyone's time trying to figure out how to patch the, the server. So it's a little, little more complicated than a lighting fixture, but it's not impossible because that same wedding might have projection uh, screen and they want to display the movie of John and Cindy's marriage and you if you happen to own a little copy of some inexpensive which there are several um, inexpensive media servers on a laptop you could say hey I can play that little movie for you and voila that's your first media server experience okay um i mean there's all kinds of ways you know it's again being creative but um you can start out with some of the less inexpensive software versions that are out there and familiarize yourself with those and the concepts and then 
download the free versions of the larger ones, get to know them, watch the YouTube videos, the training videos, and, you know, basically just you got to sell yourself at some point, and that's what it comes down to is saying, I know how to do that. I want to do that. So is, is there is there a software like that or opportunities like that available for Mbox? Absolutely, yes. There are some wonderful training videos on the PRG website, um, and the software is free. You can download it. It's it's called Inbox Studio, and without a dongle, it's absolutely free. You can uh, control, I believe it's four layers, eight layers, something like that. You just won't actually be. It has a you know the little demo thing flashes up, but it's full featured. There's no limitations on any of the features. And you can do everything you could do with the actual server um, except for output, which is where the dongle would unlock that. And the dongles, depending on, there's several price ranges for the dongles. Um, some media server programmers I've heard will buy the dongle for a couple of layers so that they have a way on their Mac laptop to just be able to do a couple of layers in a show. Um, on their own. They don't have to rent a separate server or anything. So there are options, uh, various levels of, of software for Inbox, and they are, uh, there are training videos online as well. Inbox is three things. There's Inbox Designer, which is the rack rental system that if you call PRG and say, I want to rent an Inbox, that would be Inbox Designer. That's going to give you 12 layers, two outputs, and all the bells and whistles. And then there's Inbox Studio. Inbox Studio is software only. There's a dongle for that, and I believe it's eight layers, if I'm not mistaken. And you can run that on pretty much any any Mac that meets a certain requirement of software, which I believe is the latest OS, you know, that kind of thing. And then there's Inbox Mini, which I believe is four layers. And that's probably the least expensive and most affordable entry-level media server and uh, again it runs on any any Mac computer so I imagine another good place to look for further information is your book um, well thank you for mentioning that can you tell me about the book tell me about sort of what the genesis of it was and what it covers absolutely you know one of the beautiful things about having worked at high end back uh, in the in the early stages of media servers was being there when catalyst was developed and the industry sort of took a foothold. So, but at the time I had never touched anything video related ever in my life other than maybe turning on a projector. So I knew nothing. I was very green and I had a lot to learn when Catalyst first came out and trying to be customer support person for a product when you don't know the, the uh, industry is really challenging. So I had to do a lot of research and I still, I mean, I'm constantly learning more and more about video every day. It's the video side of our business. It's almost infinite in the amount of products and the, and the information that's available. But this book is essentially the culmination of all the research that I've done over the years to be able to teach someone how to get started with a media with programming on media server from a lighting console and it covers the you know the basics of video it, it's not intended to be video guide for every type of show in the world um, but it's it has terminology and concepts that I 
found and still do find are useful to know when talking video with a client or with the projectionist or um, you know a salesperson or whoever that might have a question. So that this book is sort of a reference manual that I wrote for me <laughs> um, along the way, and I thought it would be a great uh, thing to to offer to other people as well because I do constantly you know, answer questions about, you know, programmers that want to make the jump and start learning how to work more with media servers or they've worked with a media server, but they didn't really understand certain things. And, and, uh, and so this book hopefully fills that niche, um, that didn't this, you know, nothing like this was really written in the, uh, in the technical books in our industry. So I would very much like to be able to, to say, if you take this book and you sit down behind a console, you could probably get started, you know, and that's, that was my goal from the beginning to, uh, in writing it. Kind of a user manual slash training uh, guide, I guess, is a way to look at it. Well, I'm really, really thrilled that you wrote it. Uh, you know, thank you for that. And I just checked on Amazon. It is available there. Thank you. So go out and check it out. Media Service for Lighting Programmers by, by Vicki Claiborne. What are what are some things or something from the book that you would just want everyone to hear right now? Uh, I think that the, the the idea of trying to control video from a lighting console seems daunting, but what I tried to do in the book was was show you that it's really not all that different than programming a moving light that has X number of channels and, you know, three gobo wheels and color mixing and all these other features. I, I really tried to translate the, if you, if you know how to program a moving light, I tried to take those same concepts and apply them to a layer on a media server and really simplify that world in that way so that it doesn't seem so uh, challenging to try to think of video in a 4 to 3 or 16 by 9 ratio. You're thinking of it as a another type of fixture that you're controlling. And it, yeah, it does different things and the channels have different names, but really the concepts are the same. It's still DMX channels that make the splits the layer in half or inverts it makes it black and white or makes it monochrome or makes it turn into a kaleidoscope it's it's kind of breaking it down to the to its simplest concepts i think and that, i think that's the primary focus of the book is to get those concepts across that it's not it doesn't have to be as challenging as it might appear to be that seems like an excellent point who is this book for it is not for <laughs> the advanced media server programmer. It is definitely intended for those people who either have curiosity, want to know more about how to program a media server using a console, or they're just starting out, but they're needing a little bit more information. It would be, it's a, in my opinion, it would be a great book for a college curriculum. I've always kind of thought and hoped that you know, schools would pick it up and put it into curriculums because if there were books like this available when I was going to college, I would have been all over them. I would have, you know, bought every single one of them. And, uh, and that's, you know, kind of what I'm, what my goal is, is to try to 
help the person who's just kind of at that beginning level um, sort of go from beginning into the intermediate level. And again, it's the intermediate to advanced level stuff. You won't really find that in this book because that kind of stuff comes from show after show after show and, and making mistakes. And, you know, maybe someday I'll write that volume, you know, second, a second book in there about the advanced stuff. But um, that's kind of the intended, intended target audience, I guess. Whether or not you want to use it in, you know, in your college curriculum, I think it should be talked about. It should be shown. It should be taught, or at least a lab. And um, and those schools that do embrace the technology, I think, are surpassing the rest of the programs in the country uh, for those reasons. And they're, they're standing out. They're starting to gather more and more um, of a reputation for being cutting edge. So, uh, tell me a little bit about the Art of Programming panel that you're about to do at LDI. Well, my colleague, and who I would consider a brother, uh, Brad Schiller. And also Casting Light podcast guest. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He um, invited me a few years ago to be a guest on this panel. And I think it was two years ago, LDI asked Brad and myself if we would be the co-hosts for it. And so for the last two years, he and I have been the co-hosts of this panel. And it's, in my opinion, it's it's so much fun because not only for me as being on the panel to be able to share my ideas, but also to be on the panel and in the room and listening to the other panelists share their ideas and their styles and their thoughts. And that's essentially what we do. Brad has a very nice flow, uh, a PowerPoint presentation for the entire day. So, and it's broken up into four sessions. So it's like an hour and a half long and then there's a break and another hour and a half. So, and you can come to one or you can come to all. It's, it's entirely, you know, up to you, however many you want to attend. And then, um, so like in the morning, we'll talk about the, the basic stuff, like how, and, and he'll, he'll present a question and, you know, the panelists will answer it and we'll discuss it. And then uh, we'll move on to the next topic and the next topic. And, and, uh, and we take questions from the audience, of course, and explain things to, you know, try to be uh, uh, as, you know, forthcoming on answers as possible. Uh, we, you know, try to get into, by the afternoon, we try, we added last year, um, the very last session is on media server programming. And thank you, Brad. And uh, so we talk about, you know, some specific things for programming media servers that are slightly or could be a little slightly different than uh, than uh, programming with moving lights and uh, some tips and tricks on things for the full range in between. What, what are some of the topics you're looking forward to discussing on this panel? Well, I'm always fascinated with workflow questions, I have to say. I, I had the opportunity recently to kind of talk with um, one of the top MA programmers in the business. His name is Eric Marchwinski. And just, and this was after Rock and Rio, actually, um, several shows came through Rock and Rio where he had his stamp all over it. And everyone was talking about Eric and Eric and Eric. And I was like, I got to get to know this guy. I got to know how he approaches his console. And I have to say that, you know, by 
talking with him and going, you know, through some ideas and questions with him, I, I have a new respect for the MA that um, if I didn't have it before, <laughs> that's why I love hearing the other panelists on this panel talk because everyone's approach is different yet similar. So we have similar concepts like, you know, position presets and color presets, but how you organize them and how you access them can be completely different. And this console allows you and really shows off, you know, how your brain thinks, I guess, is the best way to say it. So I love seeing how everybody else's brain thinks, I think, is my, is overall, there's no specific topic. It's just, I want to see how they do what they do, honestly. All right. I mean, that sounds like a great opportunity. Absolutely. Um, When is the panel and what do people have to do to come check it out? Well, there's a registration online. And to my knowledge, it's part of um, the LDI conference pass. I don't know if there's a charge for it or not. But to be honest with you, um, I don't think there is. So, but you have to register on the LDI website and it's the Thursday prior to LDI. It'll be a full day and I'm sorry, I don't have the date in front of me. I tried to look it up. The 22nd of October, I believe. Um, It'll be, it'll start at, I believe, 9 a.m. or in the morning and we'll have breaks throughout the day and it ends sometime around 3.30, 4 o'clock. And I just, I can't stress this enough. We didn't always have stuff like this. Absolutely. I, I know that, you know, one of my first, if, I think it was my very first LDI um, that I ever went to. There was nothing like that. And I went to the uh, Women in Technology Breakfast, I believe is what it was. And I was, you know, blown away to meet other women in this business in all aspects. It wasn't just lighting programmers and stuff, but just the ability to talk about or listen to other people talk about this business. We're all sort of in some aspects, various aspects of this business, doing everything from concerts to corporate events to conventions and trade shows to uh, you name it. And uh, and just being able to share that wealth and range of knowledge, I think, is is it can be beneficial if, if people, you know, come – uh, with questions and 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 ask what they want to learn. There's no reason why you can't walk out of there feeling like you've learned everything you need to know. So, what do you think about the future of consoles? Anything about the future of control? And what direction do you see playback going in the future? Well, I can tell you what I hope to see. Um, that that sounds good. <laughs> um, what I see, of course. Coming in control is the the uh, movement toward you know streaming ACN, um, and that's going to open up you know a lot of opportunities for a lot larger shows, faster data transfer, and so therefore I think you know what what we've already seen in lighting fixtures and media servers is this move away from r- really caring how many channels it has. Um, but eventually with ArtNet, you know, you'll, you'll hit a, an upper limit, um, if you have tons of LEDs and, you know, a dozen media servers, you, you know, you might be talking a hundred universes before you know it. And so I think, you know, consoles moving on to the streaming ACN platform, um, will allow 
a lot more data transference. So that's that's happening now. That's not something that's that far away. It's it's starting to happen now. Um, everything's you know definitely going toward more of a network-based type uh, communication protocol. Even fixtures, you know, are, are I I don't know if DMX will ever truly go away, but I think that fixtures will become capable of doing both a hard DMX line and an Ethernet line and. Uh, it won't be as big a deal to use the Ethernet line as it as it still kind of is. There's not a whole lot of fixtures out there that that can do it and or do it solidly or you know it's it's not robust yet. So uh, to some degree, so I think that'll be that'll continue to grow. As far as consoles, as far as what I would like to see in a console is a true hybrid of a video and lighting console. I see. And in my opinion, the first company that does that, and it's not limited to just their own products, will set the next trend in lighting, in, in control. Because of the need for better controls for the, for the media server programmer, if they are going to be you know, programming from a lighting console. Now, there's, there's kind of two trains of thought. You're also seeing, we're also seeing media servers develop, take on more of this standalone approach. So you don't necessarily have to have a lighting console to operate them, which is nice. It's great because it opens up the products to a whole other market of video engineers that aren't lighting programmers. But for lighting programmers, having some of the basic set of tools that a video engineer has, like being able to preview your movies on your console before they're live, things like that. Um, those are some features that I think can be addressed um, and put into consoles, but it's, you know, we're still a little bit away away from that happening on a, on an impressive scale. With the exception of the uh, Avalites console that they have that connects to the AI media server, that is a console that does both well, but it only concurrently control the AI media server, um, which is and every time LDI rolls around, I go back over to the Avalites guys because I love them, Steve, very much, and I'm say, okay, when can that control something else. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh and eventually I'm I'm sure it will happen. It just isn't the priority right now and I totally understand that, but um I think that's where our industry I think that's sort of where that industry can grow. As we're sort of winding down here, uh, do you have any uh advice for new folks, you know, sort of how to figure out what your path is, you know, earlier on in your career? Like like you, you, you sort of sorted out where you wanted to be pretty quickly. How would you recommend other people do that? It is tough, I think, because there's so many different directions you can go in the business, and it's one of the things as a mentor for interns that I'm 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 painfully aware of through the three months that I get to spend with them on how to identify where their strengths and passions are and sort of help guide them in those directions and. And it's so common, I think, for people to, to look at one job and go, that's what I want to do. And yet 
once they start learning about what it takes to do that one job, they realize that's not really what I want to do. I want to do something over here. I want to do this thing. And to me, getting started in this business, you absolutely should explore everything that catches your eye. And the things that you have the most passion for are the things that you should pursue. But but don't be so narrow-minded that you keep yourself from entertaining an idea that comes up along the way. Because, for instance, if I had said when Catalyst was being developed, oh my gosh, that's a video product, and I, I don't know anything about video. I don't want to learn that. I mean, I would have missed out on such a huge opportunity to learn about this whole new product line and and where we've gone in our industry now is this, you know, blending of lighting and video. So where, if I'd have said, no, I don't want to learn that, then I, I would be, I would have been limiting myself. So I think the hardest thing to do is sort of figure out what direction you want to go in. But after that, it's try to align yourself with people and opportunities take advantage of training opportunities when they're when they exist so many more console manufacturers and, and media server uh, companies they offer training classes all the time now and it used to only be one or once or twice a year and now it's pretty much every manufacturer does them almost monthly or at least every couple of months so you know look for training opportunities look to meet people. It's all about networking. It's all about being on that show that you're working and you're in your follow spot operator, but getting to know the programmer and don't, you know, without being a a huge pain in the butt, but, you know, asking some questions or, or paying attention at least watching what they're doing without, you know, asking questions, but just taking the opportunity to learn as much as you can when you're around the people doing the things that you want to learn how to do. And then look for opportunities to do those things, even if they're for free. I've done a lot of things in my career that I did not make money for. And it wasn't about the money. It was about getting to do that thing, designing that show or programming that show or getting to run the board on that. I mean, that there's so many of those for me that I was just like, no, I, I just want to do that. I, if you give me a meal, that'd be fine. And I did that when I was starting out. Those things will stand out to the right people. Along the way, you'll get recognized. That person works really hard. You know, that. let's give them an opportunity. And that's exactly what happened at the theater for me in Branson, Missouri. I was always trying to figure out how to, we had those Wybron color scrollers and they were always popping off and I was determined to figure out how to (laughs) re-roll them and reset them and keep them back on. And, and it was because I was doing stuff like that, that my theater said, well, we're going to, when we buy these IntelliBeams, we're going to send Vicky down to Austin and let her learn how to tech them and program them. And, and that's how it happens. You, you can be doing one thing all together and then an opportunity comes up. And uh, just be ready for it. And that's a really, really good point. And, you know, I think it's also worth mentioning, you know, do those things for little or no money when you can, because eventually you're in a position where you can't do that, you know, where you actually have to start thinking about, well, I can't lose money. Right. You know, I can't not do the thing that is at the regular rate so I can go and do the really sexy thing, but that's not going to pay any money because of all the life that's gotten in the way since then. No, you're absolutely right. There will be a time. So yeah. take those chances when the, when they're there. Definitely. All right. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, people want to maybe get in contact with you, what can they do? 
Well, I do have a website which has just basic information and a few pictures of some projects and stuff. That's that'll have my email address. You can always reach me through the PRG Las Vegas office as well, um, and that contact information is on the PRG website uh, as as well. It has my uh, office number and my email there. So, and I, you know, feel free to reach out. I'm, I actually have a Facebook page as well, uh, Twitter, and all kinds of PR, uh, PLSN uh, column, and all that. So, all right. Well, uh, get me all those links, and I'll make sure they all get posted. Okay. All right. I can do that. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us. Jason, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Don't forget to pick up Vicki's book, Media Service for Lighting Programmers. Uh, you can pick it up on Amazon. You can also learn more about it on the uh, local press website. And Vicki writes for PLSN, so check out her articles there. We'll have those posted. Yeah, and if you do get the book, send me an email. Let me know what you think about it. Thanks very much, Vicki. You have a good night. Thanks, Jason. You too. Thanks again. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. It's